following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So, we are going to dive into a new series this morning, a new teaching series, and it's going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you brought a Bible this morning, if you've got a Bible at home, if you've got a Bible on your device, uh, open it up, find that Bible app, and see if you can find your way to Philippians in the New Testament, uh, quite a long way into the New Testament, uh, after Galatians, after Ephesians, then you hit Philippians. And uh, we're going to journey through this book. It'll probably be several months uh, in reality that we're working our way through Philippians. I'd encourage you to have a read of this book in your own time. Uh, it's only four chapters. It's not too onerous. And uh, there's nothing like reading through the book of the Bible from start to finish that we're working through. You'll get a sense of the whole thing in a way that you won't necessarily as we just have pull out bits of it uh, on a Sunday morning. We've also got study sheets that go along with the series. So those are online uh, on our teaching page uh, or on the church app. You can grab those. If you want to use those for discussion in your, in your home churches or at home, you're welcome to do that uh, or in your life groups during the week. So more questions for reflection around what we're doing. But I chose Philippians because it is a book full of joy. And do we need a bit of joy at the moment? Just, yeah, don't we? Just a little bit, right? Yeah, amidst all the doom and gloom that's going on, um, I thought we could do with a bit of joy. So Philippians is a book that just oozes joy. It's just, it is a letter and it is personal. It is warm. It is friendly. It is intimate. It is full of joy. It's full of Jesus. It's full of the gospel. It's full of the good news. So I thought that'd be a great journey for us. Just a really positive journey, focusing ourselves around the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're heading. That's what we're going to be doing. Now, this morning, we are just going to look at the first couple of verses in Philippians. Okay, we'll pick up the pace next week. But this morning, it's just the introduction that we're going to look at to Philippians. And this will help to give you a bit of an orientation to the letter as a whole. Uh, understand who it's from and who it's to and how it works so that we can dive into the body of the letter next week. Okay, so just two verses this morning. And uh, let me read those to you. Philippians chapter one, verses one and two. Paul and Timothy. Servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so the first words that we get in Philippians are Paul and Timothy. Now, who are these guys? Well, Paul, we know as the Apostle Paul, he wrote many of the letters books in the New Testament. And Timothy was Paul's colleague in ministry. He was part of Paul's team, part of Paul's church planting team. So Paul uh, was uh, traveling around what is now Turkey, that part of the world, and he recruited Timothy. This young man, Timothy, became a Christian, became part of Paul's team, became part of Paul's church planting team. And, and from there, he was part of that circle, traveling, uh, helping Paul write some of those letters Paul dispatched them to different churches at different times. So Paul and Timothy then carried on, and Paul one night had this vision. It was a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is Greece. And this, you can read the story in the book of Acts. And this man said, come over here and help us. And so Paul took that as a sign from God that he was to go to Macedonia, that he was to travel to Greece. 
So Paul and Timothy travel from where they were in Turkey, across the Aegean Sea, to Greece, up into Greece, up into the coast of Greece. And that was a, that was a significant moment because that when, when Paul and Timothy land in Greece, this is the first time that the gospel comes to Europe. That, that's what that moment represented, significant moment. Um, no one had carried the gospel that far before. But here's Paul and Timothy, and you can read in Acts chapter 16, they set foot on European soil, and this is the first time the good news comes to Europe. When they planted this church in Philippi that we're going to look at, this is the first church ever planted in Europe. So, I mean, historically, that's hugely significant. That as you read the book of Philippians, you're reading the story of the first church in Europe, and maybe even more significant to think about at the moment with all that's going on in Europe, and all that's happening just further north of where Paul and Timothy came in in Greece. But it, it was a troubled part of the world then, as it's a troubled part of the world now. But the gospel came to Europe. The good news came to Europe, just like Europe needs good news at the moment. And so from there, Paul and Timothy come to the city of Philippi. And Philippi was a significant city. It wasn't the biggest city uh, in, the, in the region, but it was, Acts describes it as the leading city. And the reason for that is because Philippi was a Roman colony. What that means is that if you lived in Philippi, you were automatically a Roman citizen. It was bestowed upon, and it was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. You had a whole lot of rights that went along with that, a whole lot of privileges that went along with that. It was difficult to become a Roman citizen in those days. But if you lived in Philippi, you just had it. It meant they, they had certain tax exemptions. It also meant that Philippi was populated with a whole lot of army vets. So from the Roman army, a whole lot of old battle-weary soldiers were living in Philippi. It's just the kind of city that it was. So it was a very Roman sort of city. It would have been statues to Caesar everywhere. The whole thing was just one big tribute to Rome and Roman power and the Roman Caesars. And this is the city that Paul and Timothy come into, bringing the good news. As they come into Philippi, they plant this little church there. Um, the first convert in Philippi was a woman named Lydia. And her story is part of Acts chapter 16. So this woman, Lydia, she became the leader of the first house church in Philippi. So if you're watching this in a house church, you're in good company. All the churches in Philippi, they were all house churches. They were all meeting in people's homes. And that's how these churches were in those days. Sometimes they would gather together across homes. But week in, week out, they would gather together as little house groups. And so Paul wasn't in Philippi that long, probably stayed about a week initially. But then from then, he'd carried on a really warm, thank you, really warm relationship with the Philippian church. And he'd sent Timothy a couple of times to connect back with the Philippians. The Philippians had supported Paul's ministry financially uh, a number of times. And so there'd been this really warm connection between Paul and the Philippian church. And you can hear that in this letter. As, as you read it, if you, if you read it on your own, just think about the tone of this letter. Think about how it feels, how it sounds. And it just has this warmth to it. Paul has real affection for this church. He, he loves these people. He's got a soft place in his heart for them. So now by the time we get to Philippians, Paul is writing this letter from Rome. So he's now in Rome, right in the heart of the empire. Uh, he's a prisoner in Rome. He's a prisoner under Emperor Nero. And Nero was one of the most brutal, crazy dictators 
of the entire Roman Empire. If you think Putin is a crazed dictator, you should do a little bit of research into Nero. In fact, Putin was probably born in the wrong era in some ways. You know, he would have fit right in in the Roman Empire among all of these warmongering, tyrannical emperors. That's who they were, these bloodthirsty emperors. And Nero was among the worst of them. And Nero was one of those emperors who undertook incredible persecution against Christians. In fact, right at the time that Paul's writing this letter, or just after that time, there's huge persecution unleashed upon Christians in Rome. So Paul's writing right in the middle of that time when Nero's in power, Christians are about to be persecuted, and he's writing to Christians who are in this Roman colony full of people who were dedicated to worshiping the Roman God. So really significant sort of dynamics that are going on there. Really interesting place for the gospel to kind of come forth and be, and be encouraged. So that's a little bit of background around what's going on with Paul as he writes from Rome. He's planning on writing this letter and then sending Timothy with that letter. Sending him, Paul obviously can't get there at the moment. He's in chains, but he's going to send Timothy to Philippi and give them this letter and have it read out in the congregation there. So have a look at the way that Paul describes himself in this letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So that word that Paul uses there, servants, is the word doulos. And it literally means a slave. It's the name for a common household slave. About 20% of Philippi's population were slaves. And if you're a slave, you don't have any rights. You don't have any freedoms. You don't have any particular social standing. You don't have status. You don't have any rank. You, you are worthless in the eyes of society. You're at the absolute bottom of the rung, bottom of the heap. And Paul comes to Philippi in his letter, at least, and says, that's who I am. I'm a slave. He's saying, I'm not going to play up my credentials for you. I'm not going to come and play power games with you. I'm not going to tell you that I'm this great authority figure. I'm not going to play up my apostolic credentials. I am coming to you as a slave. I'm writing to you as, as a slave. All I am, says Paul, is a servant. All I am is a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus. And I think it's worth just pausing and reflecting on that reality, because what was true of Paul is true of us, right? But that's ultimately that's our identity too. If we're followers of Jesus, we are douloi. We are slaves, and I think we need to hear that. We need to hear that in our age, where we're so tempted to define ourselves in other ways. We're so tempted to define ourselves by what we earn, what we wear kind of house we have, what kind of car we drive, what kind of job we have. These are the status symbols of our culture. That's how we define ourselves. We define ourselves by achievement and accomplishment and reputation and status and standing. And Paul says, no, no, put all of that aside. None of that means anything. What matters is that you're a slave. What matters is that you're a doulos. That's all you are. That's all I am. And when you come to know Jesus, that's enough because you're a slave. You're a servant of the king. And that's all we ever need to be. And I want to encourage you to take that word seriously and embrace that identity. Embrace your identity as a servant. Embrace your identity as a doulos, a servant. You don't need anything else. You don't have to fill your life with anything else. You are a servant of Jesus. That's enough. That's who you are. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he, uh, he imagines himself in heaven. And he imagines himself walking through heaven kind of taking a guided tour. 
And at one point, he comes across this big parade, this huge big procession, and it's in honor of a particular woman. So there's all this fanfare, and there's musicians, and there's singers, there's all this pomp and ceremony, and at the end of the procession is this woman who's being honored, and and Lewis says she is just like glowing, she's just radiant, and he looks at this woman, and he says, man, she must have been someone incredibly important on earth, and his guide says, well, yes, she was, but greatness in heaven and greatness on earth are two very different things. And he goes on to describe how this woman's greatness during her life on earth came through the fact that she welcomed everyone who came to her door, even the boy bringing the meat. Her greatness on earth came through the fact that she showed love to everyone that she was in conversation with. Her greatness on earth came through the fact that she showed kindness to children, treated everyone as a son or a daughter. That was her greatness. And now here she is in heaven, being honored and celebrated like nothing. And I'll tell you, when we get to heaven, the people who will be first, the people who will be the great ones in heaven, they're people you're never going to have heard of, right? You won't, you won't have read their books because they haven't written books. You, you won't have been on their webinars and seminars because they haven't got webinars and seminars and podcasts and conferences, right? You won't have heard of their reputation because they don't have a reputation, but they were the ones who were simply faithful, humble servants of Jesus Christ. They were the douloi. They were the servants. And in heaven, the last will be the first. And that's why in this life, we don't need a clamor to be first. We don't need a clamor to be known, to be seen, to pursue all the trappings of success and greatness. We need to be content with our identity as the douloi, as the servants. That's all we are. That's all we need to be. Servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. So that sets a tone for the whole letter. Paul's identifier of himself as as a doulos. And then he goes on, second half of verse one, he says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, that phrase, God's holy people, it's the Greek word hagios, and it means to be set apart. Some of your translations might say saints, to the saints in Philippi. The language of that verse, it goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, where God met with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And he said to them, Exodus 19, he says, I'm calling you to be my holy people. And he designated Israel as his holy people. So they were set apart for God's purposes and God's service. So when Paul writes this a long, long, long time later, he's saying to the Philippians, you are now brought in to that people, to that community. God raised up this this community And he designated them as his holy people. And now you Philippians are part of that community. You are set apart just as the Israelites were. And it's just the same for us today. 21st century, here we are in Auckland. And we are part of God's holy people. Going all the way back to Mount Sinai. We're part of that story. We're part of that that thread that is woven through history. That God has called this holy people. There were churches in the first century drawn into that community. We today are part of that holy people. We are set apart, set apart from the world, set apart from our old lives, set apart to be God's holy people in this place. We are saints. And I don't know how that sounds to you, calling yourself a saint, especially after we've just been talking about ourselves as servants, right? And all of a sudden, it almost sounds like the opposite, like we're servants, but how, like, how are we going to be saints as well as as well as servants. You know, if you just think about your life, 
It, you probably don't think of yourself as being particularly saintly, do you? Is that right? If you look at the person next to you, do they look particularly saintly? Not really. Particularly holy? None of us really seem particularly holy, right? We don't think of ourselves that way. But this is how God sees us. Let me read to you a quote by uh, one of the great theologians in the 20th century, Karl Barth, who says this. This people, he's talking about the church, is sanctified. That means made holy, despite the fact that it is a disobedient people, as is unmistakably clear in the light of its origin in the cross of Christ. It is sanctified through him who makes the ungodly righteous through the election and calling of its Lord and head. There's a few big theological words there, but what he's saying is this. We're not holy because of our obedience. We're holy in spite of our disobedience. That's how God works in our lives, right? He doesn't look at you and go, well, you're doing pretty well. You seem to be ticking most of the boxes. You're making good progress in your Christian life. You are holy. He looks at you and says, you are a filthy, broken, rotten, dysfunctional sinner, but I'm going to make you holy anyway. Because I love you and because I've sent Jesus to the cross to die for you. And now I give you holiness as a gift. It's not something you can achieve. It is something you must receive. That's how holiness works. We receive it as this gift. So even in all of our brokenness and our weakness, and we feel so unholy, and we are. We feel so unworthy, and we are. But God looks upon our brokenness and he meets us right at our point of need. And he says, I give you holiness and not just any holiness, but the holiness of Jesus Christ. It's his own holiness that we receive. It's the righteousness of Jesus. It's the obedience of Jesus. It's the holiness of Jesus we receive into our lives. And so now as the father looks at you, he sees not all of your brokenness and sin. He knows that's there, but he, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees the holiness of Jesus. That's what it means to say, I'm a saint. And that's why we can sit in this room or in your home today and say, I am a servant. I'm a doulos. I'm at the bottom of the pile, and that's okay. And at the same time, I'm a saint. I'm at the top of the pile, not because of anything in me, but because of the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ. And I have been made holy and right before God because of him. So we need to embrace that identity as God's holy ones, God's holy people. Maybe you need to spend a bit of time looking in the mirror and thinking, yeah, I'm a saint. I am a saint, not because of me, but because I've been given that as a gift, holiness as a gift through Jesus Christ. It'll take a bit of getting used to, won't it? So we're servants and we're God's holy ones. Let me touch on one other word that Paul mentions in this uh, opening introduction. He says at the end, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. I've talked quite a bit about peace over the last few weeks, so I'm going to switch and talk about grace this morning. What Paul does here is so fascinating. In, in the ancient world, when you, when you wrote a letter, there were certain things that you did, right? There were certain conventions of letter writing, right? It's the same as if you're sending an email today, you know, you have a certain sign-off or a certain email signature. There were conventions like that. One of them was that when you wrote a letter, you would begin in your, in your opening little uh, sentence or two, uh, you'd use the word karain. And that word, very standard word, and it meant greetings. And you'd put that in your introduction. Not a Christian word, it just was part of letter writing, whoever you were. Karain, greetings. Well, Paul's not happy with that. He's not content 
just to say Karain. He doesn't want just generic greetings. So what he does is masterful. He takes that word and he twists it into a different word using the same root word. But instead of Karain, it becomes Karis, which means, anyone? Grace. And so Paul has taken something even as simple as the greeting in a letter and he's brought it under the influence of the gospel. And he said, at the hand of the Lord, greetings become grace, become grace to you. And grace, of course, is God's undeserved favor in our lives. Grace is, is God making us holy through Jesus Christ. Grace is God looking upon the undeserving and pouring out his favor upon us, which he has done supremely through giving us the gift of his son to live, to die, to be raised again for our salvation. But as Paul's writing this, he's not just thinking of the grace that these Philippians received when they first became Christians. He's writing to them as already Christians who have been Christians for some time now. And he's saying to them in the present, grace to you. He's not just saying, remember the grace that you had when you first became saved. He's saying right now in the present, grace to you and grace to you. I think often we imagine grace to be this thing that we get when we become a Christian and then we're not quite sure what to do with it. Is that right? Like we kind of put the grace card in our back pocket and we assume, I guess I'm going to have to produce this when I get to heaven. Like when I stand before Jesus, that's when I play the grace card and uh, he's going to let me in, right? Until then, it just sits in the back pocket. I, I don't really need it. I think that's how a lot of Christians tend to travel through life. And yet Paul writes to this church in the present. He says, no, I want you to experience the grace of God today. The grace of God is not just something that saves us. It is something that sustains us and transforms us and enriches our lives every single day. Let me read you a great description of grace in the present. A writer named Max Licardo. Any Max Licardo fans here? He's got a daily devotion. Uh, so Max Licardo says this. Grace is simply another word for God's tumbling, rumbling reservoir of strength and protection. It comes at us not occasionally or miserly, but constantly and aggressively, wave upon wave. We've barely regained our balance from one breaker, and then bam, here comes another. Grace upon grace. We never exhaust his supply. Stop asking so much. My grace reservoir is running dry. Heaven knows no such words. Grace, God has enough grace to solve every dilemma you face, wipe every tear you cry, and answer every question you ask. That's grace in the present. You're saved by the grace of God. But now in our lives in the present, God continues to pour his grace, his favor, his mercy, just his sheer kindness into your life every single day. Sometimes we're just not open enough to recognize what's going on. But every day of your life, God is wanting to touch you with his grace. Every day of your life, God is wanting to pour out his strength upon you his sustaining power, and it is a reservoir that will never, ever run dry. It's a tap that's never going to turn off in your life. Sometimes we're just not looking for it. Sometimes we're just not aware of it. I experienced the grace of God in my life in a moment I can remember recently. Uh, the, these past few months have been up and down for me, as you can imagine, right? With all the complexities of this season in ministry and in church life, I've had my ups and downs. I've had my good days and my bad days. It's been some difficult times. A couple of weeks ago, I was just having a really tough day and just feeling down on, on myself and life and ministry and everything. And a wise old friend from the church just happened to call me up that afternoon. Didn't know what kind of day I was having at all. 
And he said, would it be okay if I just swung past the hubby, just had something to drop off? And I said, well, do you want to have coffee? And so we had coffee. And without him needing to know everything about the situation, he just spoke encouragement into my life and spoke blessing and spoke the grace of God. And God used that conversation to restore my soul and lift me up again in a moment that I really needed it. Now, that was the grace of God. That's grace to me in that moment, just exactly when I needed it. Right? God ordained that. Not this guy, not me. We, you know, we, we were coming and going, but God knew what he was doing. Sometimes God is going to work through other people to pour his grace into your life, through their words, through their kindness. Sometimes he'll work through their prayers, other people praying for you when you can't even pray for yourself. Sometimes it'll just be that gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that'll be God's grace just touching your life. Sometimes it's a promise in his word. There'll be something you stumble upon, and it's just like striking gold, and you just realize that's a promise for me. That's a verse. That scripture just speaks right into my situation today. That's grace to you. Sometimes it's something in creation, and you're out for a walk, and there's just where you are, the space you're at just touches your soul, and you just recognize the glory of God in creation. That's grace to you. And I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to be aware of God's grace to you in the presence. The fingerprints of God are everywhere in your life. We're often just not aware. We're so tunnel vision. We're just getting through the day. We're just slogging it out and getting stuff done, running from one thing to another. I know I am a lot of the time. But let's just slow down long enough that we can recognize and receive as God's servants, as God's saints, and as those who are filled with the grace of God every single day of our lives. Amen? Well, let's pray together, people. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you. I just thank you for your word this morning and its power. And I just know, Holy Spirit, even as we've opened your word this morning, that your, your spirit is working among your people, working here, working in the homes of those watching this this morning. We believe the promise from Scripture, that your word will never go forth without accomplishing the purpose for which you send it, Lord Jesus. And we want to pray now that your word would, would take deep root in our lives, Lord Jesus, that we, would, <clears throat> that we would know ourselves to be your servants, that we would know ourselves to be your holy ones, and that we would know your grace in our lives. I want to pray, God, as we think about this series, that through the pages of this letter that Paul wrote so long ago, thousands of years ago, that God, you would speak and that we would meet you in the pages of your word, that your word would be, as it says it is, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judging the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Lord, we're ready to receive. We're ready to learn. We want to say we're ready to be challenged where we need to be challenged. We are ready to be led forward in your grace and in your mercy and for your glory. And so it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.